Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 13 of Cold War Conversations. Now, most of you will know my good friend Shane Whaley over at the highly recommended Spybury podcast, who we interviewed in episode four. Shane and I have always been intrigued by a video posted on YouTube filmed in the 1980s by a then young US Army soldier documenting his first days in Berlin for his family back at home. Now, I never dreamed that I would find let alone talk to that soldier. But through the magic of the internet, we got in touch and Michael Rafferty has agreed to give his first interview in 24 years to Cold War Conversations. His story spans the last days of Checkpoint Charlie from when the border was the heavily fortified barrier familiar to us from those spy films to the opening of the wall and the unification of Germany. I am delighted and honoured to welcome Michael Rafferty. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great, Ian. Uh, thank you very much for this opportunity. Uh, what I'd like to say is uh, a big thank you to those who have served. Uh, this is Memorial Day here in the United States. And uh, just a thought and a prayer to those who have served and, and died in the service of our country here in the United States, and no doubt with our allies as well. So thank you for having me today, Ian. Well, no, thank you, Michael, and, and thank you for sharing those thoughts with us, something we absolutely concur with. What, one of the, the first questions I wanted to ask you was just a little bit about your background and, and why you uh, joined the, uh, the U.S. Army. You know, my, my father was a 20-year service member in the United States Air Force. So when I finished high school in California... Uh, I had had to make a decision on what I was going to do. So I made the decision to give the Army a shot because I thought I wanted to become a policeman down the road. So I picked military police in the, in the Army. Right. And uh, doing that, uh, I also chose to go to Europe for my first tour. And that's what I did as a young 18-year-old kid. Okay. So were you given the option of where to take your tour or were you just told to go there? Well, no, I asked to go there originally, and that wasn't even my first tour of Berlin. That was a place called Wertheim, Germany, where I was with a 212th MP company there. Right. And then, I, and then I came back to the States, and when I came back to the States, I came to Aberdeen Proving Grounds, Maryland. And then I had the opportunity to re-enlist, and the option came up for the Berlin Brigade. And I made a decision at that time that uh, I wanted to go back to Germany. Uh, and I chose a Berlin Brigade. I was basically uh, talked into it by a, 
Sarn first class Mark Nevins, and he said it was a great assignment and you should go, and that's what I did. I re-enlisted and I went to Berlin. Okay, and what and what did you know about Berlin before you got there? Absolutely nothing. I didn't really even have a good idea of where the place was. Originally, I thought it was on the border of the two Germanys. I didn't realize that it was 110 miles into East Germany. Right. So I was I was quite shocked when I really got to learn uh, more about what the location was uh, and and the story behind it because I did not have a good understanding of it, and a, a lot of people don't. Uh, I talk to them now, and they have the same. Uh, basic naive idea of where Berlin is in relation to uh, Germany as a whole. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I, I think you're absolutely right. A lot a lot of people don't realise the, you know, the position West Berlin w- was in, and you know the fact that it was, as you say, 110 miles effectively in enemy territory and surrounded by the. Um, probably some of the best units of the Soviet and <laughs> German armies. Right. That's total fact. Yeah. So, so when, when you got to Berlin, what, you, what were your first impressions? How big the city was, how busy it was. I landed in Tegel Airport. Um, I went to uh, the American sector in Andrews Barracks. Um, I, I just got on there. I just couldn't believe I was in a big city. And the city just... It's it's huge. Mm. It's a monster city, and uh, the Tegel Airport's all the way in the French sector. So it was quite the drive to get to uh, Andrews Barracks, and they lost my luggage, so I had to go a few days. Oh, who, who did you fly with, Michael? Oh, it had to have been. Oh, it's been so long. Is it Pan Am? <laughs> yes, it was Pan Am, and, and a matter of fact, it was Pan Am Flight One Hundred Three. Oh, and wow. I got to, to England, okay. so. You know, and yeah. that was pretty spooky because a few yeah. years, a year later, I think, is when the incident happened over Lockerbie. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So, because Berlin, you know, you, you when you hear that it, you know, it was surrounded and it was walled in, I think a lot of people don't realize the size of it and the fact there's lakes and countryside and, you know, there, there was still quite a lot of space there. Well, a lot of space, but uh, you could never get lost because if you got too lost, you'd run into the wall. Yeah. And that would definitely turn you around and get you back on it. Uh, you would really have to make some major mistakes to get lost in Berlin at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so did, did you have to undergo any special training to serve with the Berlin Brigade? Was there any special advice that they gave you? Well, when I re-enlisted for the Berlin Brigade, it was congratulations, you you know, you're, you're going to Berlin. It wasn't a, a huge amount of checking to make sure I was okay or any additional training. Mm-hmm. They made sure that I would represent the Army uh, well. Um, and they, they sent me. There was no spe- specific training. And when I first got there, what I did was I worked the, what we call the road, which was law enforcement in the American sector. Mm-hmm. And there was you know, four or five uh, military bases, or we call them concerns or barracks uh, in the American sector. And, I, and I'm, I'm not sure what the British and the French called them. I don't know if they called them concerns as well. But we patrolled, we patrolled the housing areas where the dependents were. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what we were. But when I was all excited when I re-enlisted that I was going to go and not have to go out to the woods and play soldier. 
I thought I was just going to be all dressed up, look pretty, and wave people on base and do law enforcement. But the military police unit there had a huge combat support responsibility with the uh, 4th, 5th, and 6th battalions of the 502nd Infantry. Yeah. So I was there for maybe uh, a month before we went to Wild Flick in Germany on a field problem. And I I supported uh, 6th of the 502nd for a month. Mm-hmm. So, with some really great soldiers that went with me. So right. And were you given? I mean, because this was whilst the the Red Army faction was active. Were you warned to look out for terrorist activity or anything like that, or was that just well, you, 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 always, eh, you always paid attention. I mean, my first tour was was you know the bombing of Blow uh, Bell Disco in Berlin and the situation increased, you know, that we had to pay more attention. But you always had to be, have your head on a swivel, just like the soldiers that we have, the Marines in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, they come home with a heightened sense of awareness um, when they're on the road and doing things. It was the same thing yeah. uh, dealing with in Germany. Okay. And, and what were you told about the East? That, uh, that was supposed to be their uh, communist capital that it was their showplace and that we were there uh to make sure that we maintained the freedom of west berlin and uh, you know we didn't want any international incidents so we were briefed when you first got to berlin you went to a school of standards and where you were taught basic german and the expectations of what the berlin brigade had for you as a soldier mm-hmm. and what they expected of you and uh, I, you know, sometimes I, I let them down. I didn't perform the way I should have. And uh, I got smacked on the hand for it. But overall, I I think I represented the Army well there. Because yeah. so. how, how old were you then? You were quite young, weren't you? I was. I, I think I got there when I was 22 and I left when I was 25. Okay, so how how were you chosen for duty for Checkpoint Charlie? Well, I was lucky. Uh, I was I was not in good graces at the time, believe it or not. Uh, an incident had happened, and uh, they weren't too pleased with me. So I, I needed a redemption, and the person that gave me the redemption was a guy named Staff Sergeant Douglas Champagne, and uh, also a major Bronstein made the final decision that allowed me to go to the checkpoints to allow me to be in Berlin Access. And the first checkpoint I went to was Bravo. Okay. And Bravo was the either end of the Berlin Corridor, which was traveling from Helmstedt to Berlin. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm familiar with that. That's where the – this is the, the road link from Helmstedt to uh, Berlin. Correct. And, and I did that for a couple months, and then an opening happened at Checkpoint Charlie, and they asked me if I wanted to do that, and I was all about it. So – uh, they gave me an opportunity to go down to the checkpoint, and I think I got there sometime in early summer of 89, and that's when in, I, I started in, working. Impeccable timing then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I couldn't have gotten any better because I got a, a taste of the way it was while it was still stressful, while it yeah. was still drama, and, and then obviously what happened later on. Yeah. 
And what was your role at Checkpoint Charlie? What what did you do? I mean, you weren't stopping people there, were you? You were. Well, was... the the, res- the responsibility of the NCYC was to monitor uh, Allied American Allied traffic going into East Berlin. So an American soldier comes to the checkpoint. That American soldier has to be in uniform. That uniform is his identification. He doesn't have to show a passport. Mm-hmm. Their dependents, if they're from Berlin, they get issued a United States Forces ID card, and they just show the picture page and the USFB ID card front, and that's their identification. They just put it up to a closed window, and the East Germans have to look at it and be satisfied with that. Now, if you're a American coming from the West Germany with a soldier, same thing. You roll up your windows, doors locked. They look inside, they see the American in uniform, that's his ID, mm-hmm. and they see the uh, other civilians in there, and all they have to do is show the country of origin and the picture page of their passport, and then they just let them go through. Our job in the, as NCYC at the checkpoint, the non-commissioned officer in charge, was to monitor these people to make sure we had accountability of them when they went over. So they could start going over as early as 8 o'clock, and they had to be back before midnight. Mm-hmm. So they would, we'd give them a, a book, and on the book it had a number, and that's how we tracked them. We tracked them on a little sheet. So the time in and a time out, and who was over there. And right. not, not everybody could go over there. You know, Let's say uh, you are not affiliated with the military at all, and you're just an American, you would go on the other side of the East German checkpoint, and you'd pay a 10-mark visa and uh, have a mandatory exchange of 25 marks, West marks to East marks. But if now if you're an American with the military, you could go get East marks over at the train station at 10 to 1 ratio, and you were like a millionaire going into the East. Yeah. I mean, you could buy... Nutcrackers, smokers, you name it. Just all kinds of good stuff. And a lot of people did that. But that wasn't the role of the American presence. The American presence in the Soviet sector was to keep free and unrestricted access into East Berlin, inside the Soviet sector. And that was it. The shopping was just a bonus. (laughs) And when you talk about the Soviet sector, I mean, basically the, the Allies didn't recognize East Berlin as the territory of the GDR. They still treated it as though it was the Soviet sector. Which it, it was a, yes, absolutely yeah. correct. Yes, um, and 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 that's how we treated it. We would see Soviet officers, and we would render a hand salute because, in theory, they were our allies. And we would, you know, render the hand salute to the officers and give the greeting of the day, and and motor around the Soviet sector as long as we didn't leave the Soviet sector. We were fine, and there was a lot of things to see in East Berlin. So. All the best museums were that side. All the biggest ones. I, you know, I, I did not visit one. I did not visit one museum. I went to the Karlshorst. Uh, I'll take that back. Karlshorst, where they signed the uh, World War II surrender. Yeah. And also to the Soviet cemetery in Treptow. Those were my two favorites. Because I thought, did you ever go to Treptow yeah, at all? Yeah, I've been to Treptow and Karlshorst. And uh, Treptow is very impressive, I always find. 
Yep, I, I, unbelievable place. And what, what did you have any interactions with the East German border guards? You know, the only interactions we would have is when they would hold somebody up. When they wouldn't let them process the checkpoint, we'd start getting traffic jams. You know, we weren't armed, and the, the NCOICs weren't armed, so we could walk across the border and kind of look inside what was, you know, what was going on. And it was normally the, the Department of the State Department who would take a diplomat and they drop them off at uh, the airport there, and then they'd come back missing a person, and that would confuse these Germans or really, you know, give them uh, issue, and they would hold for hours sometimes a State Department vehicle right there at the checkpoint, and then we'd have to call the the interpreters, the Russian interpreters who would demand to see a Soviet officer. And the Soviets would come down and say, let him go, and then it would be over. Sometimes they just did it to harass us. And, uh, you know, talking about the 1960s when Alan Leitner, the diplomat that was detained for not showing his ID, yeah, you know, these Germans like to do that every once in a while. They like to just mess with us. Yeah, just flex their muscles and just, sh- yeah. show who's, who's sort of in charge. <laughs> What I mean b- before the fall of the wall, what what d- did you have any sort of incidents as- aside from those blockages of the checkpoint and diplomats that that you had to deal with, or was it you know generally pretty calm? I'd, I've seen videos of sort of like demonstrators trying to goad the border guards and and things like that. Did you have any incidents like that? The, the demonstrators like to come around the thirteenth of August. And, uh, you know, those, those anniversaries, Peter Fector's, uh, shooting. Yeah. Um, those anniversaries were big for demonstrations and these Germans were well prepared. They would, uh, put barriers, uh, on either side so they could funnel the problems, uh, straight forward. But those, a lot of people made sure they stayed across the border. So, you know, the wall was three meters in. So if you're touching the wall, you're in East Germany, even though you're physically in the west side in theory. Mm-hmm. If you're touching that Berlin wall, you, you could somebody could pop out of the door in the wall and snake you up if they wanted to. Yeah. Because you're in the east. So if you're causing damage or anything, or like John Runnings, the guy that's the famous wall walker, you know, was you know, he was detained for walking on the wall because he's yeah. not in the West. Yeah. But the only the only incident that happened to me was I when I came to work I came to work at six six o'clock eighteen hundred on a day and I, I started working you know the evening I get a phone call and the the guy goes hey this is Sergeant Major from this specific unit and I go straight hey Sergeant Major how are you doing he goes well one of my soldiers sneaked over in East Germany in the trunk and I'm like oh dear. God, please say it wasn't in my during my time, and I'm starting to panic. Yeah. I'm like, who is this guy? So I looked at the the sheet, and thank God that guy came in a minute before I took over. Wow, one minute, yeah. So nobody got in trouble, but yeah. we were supposed to check the vehicles, yeah. you know, the the trunks for two things: one for stowaways, and if we even got if we got a stowaway, you know, of course that soldier would get in trouble because that's not what his intention of going over was. And the other thing was excessive shopping. So, cause that's not what you're there for. 
Yeah. Um, what, what, what happened in that situation? I mean, if somebody had bought too much, what would you do? Well, it depends. Uh, a lot of there's there's been soldiers that have come across intoxicated, and you you process them just like a drunk driver. You know, you have a patrol come down, and the patrol processes. Mm-hmm. And uh, those ones that have come over and have shot too much, that we had a video camera, we parked them in the parking lot, we'd make them take everything out, and we'd video it all to include what they looked like after they came out of the East, because a lot of them decided that they didn't have to be in uniform anymore. Right. So they would take their tie off and think they were back on uh, the civilian world, back on the block is the way we call it. Yeah. So... We just and then we send that to the commanding general, and normally we would do a bar, a bar of travel to East Germany, and we bar them from the city. Right. So our computers, anytime they would want to come to the city, would say you're barred. You cannot travel to Berlin. Okay. So we okay. barred. We barred quite a few people for doing dumb stuff. So. <laughs> I mean, people would come up the corridor, they'd come up from Alpha, and then they'd come through Checkpoint Charlie. And right. we'd look at them and go, hey, do you know your alphabet? And they'd go, yeah, we know the alphabet. I said, go ahead and say it. And they go, A, B, stop. You forgot B, brother. <laughs> so they, we'd bar them from the city, and they, you know, they'd be upset they couldn't go to East Berlin, but that's just the rules. Yeah, yeah. So Now, talking of East Berlin, you have a uh, fantastic video on YouTube um, which uh, is sort of like a video diary of you. Uh, well, it's a video diary of where you lived and a visit to East Berlin, isn't it? It sure is. I did that with my good friend Casey Beamer. We were both brand new to Berlin. That was the first time either of us had walked over. And uh, the guy that you see there processing us is Greg Steffen. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of funny, a few years later, he was a few months later, he was the one that actually uh, on the job trained me on how to be an NCYC at Checkpoint Charlie. Right. And I didn't, I didn't know back then that you couldn't video a briefing. You know, I'm trying to get him to, to tell us about it. But, you know, Casey and I did, wanted to do something for our families, and we decided to take a big old, huge VHS-fed camera into the east and do our thing. And uh, when we finished, you know, we sent it to our family. And when YouTube came along, I thought it would be something that I could share on YouTube, which I did. And not all of it, the feedback has been positive. I mean, there's some really nasty comments on there about, you know, stuck up Americans. And Granted, we were pretty immature. I don't, you know, we were, but you know, hey, that's that's how we were back then, just yeah. young, immature kids. Yeah. You know, no, so. I, th- I think it's a it's a great. Uh, it captures you know the the time and the place and the way you were then. So you know that you know people change. They're not always the yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, and everything the, was high speed back then. So yeah. Yeah, well, I'll put a I'll put a link to that video in in the show notes because I'm sure people will be uh, keen keen to see that. Um, what what did you like about the job? What did you like most about uh, being on Checkpoint Charlie? I think the best part was just meeting people, um, becoming friends with a lot of the British RMPs mm-hmm. that I still have today. Um, I, I messing with the tourists that was always fun, you know. 
you know, when you sit there and you tell somebody, you know, Checkpoint Charlie's named after Charlie Chaplin, you know, and they believe you and they walk away, you know, that's pretty funny. Yeah. It's uh, Sergeant Stefano has had a thing where he would yell at a tourist and he would, he would ask them where they're from. And no matter where they would say, he would always say, I'm from there too. And the guys would come up and he'd have this long winded conversation about a place he's never been. And, uh, and they were shocked that Americans were there. You know, we'd been there for, what, 20, 27, 28 years. Well, the tourists yeah. were, were shocked that, that Americans were – well, I, I just find that a bit incomprehensible. But then people's grasp of history is not always as strong as and that's I, would, I would like it to be. That is so true. When they ask you if you speak English – the American flag is flying right there. It flies 24 hours a day, and you're asking me if I speak English. And I would just say, no, the Brits do. And they'd walk over, and the Brits used to do the same thing to us. You know, so it was just funny, and we'd go, hey, you got me on that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So did so, they feel like long days then sometimes? Did the days well, drag? For the NCYCs, they were 12-hour days. Right. So we'd, we'd go from 6 to 6, and, you know, you work two, two 12s, in the morning, in the days, two twelves in the evening, and then you'd have four days off. And uh, did they seem long? Only when it was like a Sunday seemed long because not many people went to the east because all the stores were closed. Right. You know, no, nobody went over to sightsee. You know, they went over to shop. You know, a lot of people, you know, that was just a fact. You know, they'd come all the way from West Germany through the Autobahn to be able to buy a cheap nutcracker. Ah, mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Yeah. And those days, those, those days when there weren't a lot of travelers, those were kind of boring. Mm-hmm. You, you know, there wasn't a lot of people walking around the checkpoint. But holidays, anniversaries like the 13th of August, the place was packed. Yeah. You know, it just just full of people. And, and you got to answer questions and take photographs. You know, that was an honor. When, when people would ask to get your photograph in front of the checkpoint, I mean, that was – you know, hey, I'm somebody important. So yeah. you know, we'd go out, we get the British guys and the and the French gendarmeries come out, and we'd all take a photo together. So there were all three of you there. So there was British, French, and American in that checkpoint. Correct. And the only reason why the American flag flew was it was it was in the American sector. Right. So that's the only reason why the flag flew in front of the checkpoint twenty four seven. Okay. And and in the East German parts in you know, the East German side, there weren't any permanent Soviet personnel stationed there. They were all no. East German, unless That's there it. was a reason to call Soviet personnel in. Yeah, if they decided to, to give us a problem or if there was an issue, I mean, in the past, people have had heart attacks and passed over there. So we've had to get the Soviets involved um, so we could get the, the people back over into the West. But, you know, whenever there was a problem, the Soviets would we request them nine times out of ten they wouldn't show, and because uh, they don't care, they didn't care at all about any of that stuff. Yeah, I mean you can if you ever talk to Vitaly, 
who's my friend on Facebook, I, you'd have to ask his opinion on any of the problems that they'd have with Americans. Yeah. Because he would have a better view of that. But he was no, also- I'm, I'm keen to hear the, the other side's view at some yeah. point. So, uh, yeah, I'm hoping to speak to Vitali at some point. He's a, he's a super guy. Yeah, I mean, I really have enjoyed my friendship with him. So the bit that most people want to hear about, I think, in this chat with you is the fall of the wall. So when and where did you hear about the fact that the, the wall was open? Well, I was watching AFN. So I was just sitting there watching watching TV when they said that the travel restrictions were being lifted. Now, during that time, there was a lot of uh, movement into Hungary and Czechoslovakia, and people were going around about to get out of East Germany. And so I didn't really think anything of it. I called down to the checkpoint, Nate Brown, Staff Sergeant Brown, who was a senior uh, NCYC down there. Mm-hmm. I said, Nate, is there anything going on? He said, Nope, it's pretty boring. And I said, okay, well, I'll be there to relieve you at 6 in the morning. He said, okay, I'll see you then. Now, it was Veterans Day. So we were expecting a whole ton of veterans to come up. There was a four-day weekend. So not just veterans, but soldiers coming up because they had a four-day weekend. So Mm -hmm. we were expecting it to be busy anyways. And when when I got there at 6 in the morning, I was briefed on the way down there that it was a mess. And I got to Nate and I said, you told me nothing was going on. He just shrugged his shoulders and looked at me like I was crazy. He didn't even say any, anything to me. He said, it's all yours. <laughs> so I, when he would brief Berlin based soldiers going over the East and I would deal with anybody that was brand new. So I'd actually be inside the checkpoint. So any picture you see of checkpoint Charlie taken on the day of the 10th, I'm in there in my misery processing soldiers and families that have never been to the East. And these people don't know what they're doing. So at the beginning, the first 50, 100 people, I'm doing this professional briefing saying the East German checkpoint, as you see the checkpoint, this is how you process it. And you, when you're done, you come right back here. Here's your book. It's got a number on it. Yeah. You know, and I'm doing a professional. By the time you get to 100, 150, 200 people, you just – I give them a book and you point east and you say, good luck to you, guy. Read the book. <laughs> so and, you so know, I'm, I'm amazed that loads of so, – so these were U.S. Army personnel and their dependents who wanted to go east? on Absolutely. Absolute. That was their only role. That was it. But I'm we surprised had, they'd want to go east then, you know. On that day. Yeah. Well, because it was Veterans Day holiday. They oh, had okay. a four-day. Yeah. So that you know, they all just came up. It was a vacation. Nobody expected the wall to fall. Yeah. You know, we had traffic jams on the corridor. We had people screwing up. You know, coming back through. You know, going to Alpha to Charlie. Uh, it was it was just a mess. The tracking of people was just horrendous. Yeah. And then we would get uh, calls from the Clay Compound, which is our headquarters, saying how many people are coming across. Now. If you see any pictures from that time frame, I looked across and I said, how do you expect me to to count? They said, count for 10 seconds and then multiply it by six or whatever to get what you have per minute and then times that by 60, you know, this math equation. (laughs) 
And and you see a sit rep. It's an official sit rep that I eventually got. And I'm looking at it going, that's a lie. That's a lie. I made that up. You know, <laughs> and, and I'm like, oh, my God. I even tweeted the president of the United States, uh, George H.W. Bush, mm-hmm. you know, recently. And I said, Mr. President, I wanted to apologize for those numbers. I made them completely up. I was too busy, I was too busy to count. So I wanted to apologize. But it was impossible to count anything. Wow. So it's just like this human onslaught, you know, this avalanche of humanity coming through the checkpoint. If you've ever sat next to a trabi, the trabi has a distinctive smell. Yeah. And, and it would idle right next to the checkpoint door. Lovely. And, and you do that for 12 hours, you're not feeling so hot. So <laughs> I, was, I was not feeling so hot after, after the completion of that day. It was pretty yeah. bad. And did any of the East Germans that came over speak to you? Oh, many, many. What, they what were they? Me. What were they saying? Mainly, it was it was a drunken happiness. It was just uh, you know a lot of them were just happy. Mm-hmm. You know, you get strange hugs. You know, and it wasn't like you know, thank you for being. It wasn't. They didn't really know about it. You know, it was just they were just happy to be over. Yeah, and they they went to the first thing they did was they got their money at the bank because each one of them got a hundred Westmarks. Yeah, they called it a freedom money, or I'm not sure, but there was long lines at the bank to get that money, and then they went and had had a day, and they all went back. Yeah, you know their their homes were in the east. They just wanted the ability to travel. They wanted the ability, like everybody else, is to get around and and to do their thing. But those first five or six days were just a, a total nightmare for all four of the NCYCs. There were four of us. So it was it was pretty rough. Yeah, yeah. So presumably you weren't, you know, advised to look out for, I don't know, Stasi agents coming over or, or anything like that because the presumably these Germans had smarter ways of trying to infiltrate people than sending them through Checkpoint Charlie. Yeah, well, they could go through a variety of checkpoints. There was nothing holding them back. Yeah. There was, the, you know, that was just the checkpoint where uh, I guess sometime in the 70s they had negotiated a understanding that that would be the only one the foreigners use. Yeah. And, in, in, and we would get no restrictions on our visitations to the Soviet Union or the uh, to the East German sector yeah. or the East Berlin sector. Yeah, I mean the the British had the same rights, the French had the same rights, so they all did the same thing. Yeah, because I've seen on uh, YouTube again an interesting video, which is a Stasi video of Checkpoint Charlie from the western side. Right, right. Um, <laughs> which is which is quite interesting. You know, they're obviously. I mean, they were they were constantly taking pictures. I mean, I don't know what they were taking pictures of. It's pretty boring. Yeah, you know, we had a, we had a camera pointing their direction, but it never had any tape in it. It was boring. You know, <laughs> you'd be watching the same thing, just people driving through. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're just wasting their film. Yeah. So I mean, so you're there from six in the morning till six in the evening. Was it as busy throughout those twelve hours? Did it ever it could, sort of it, quiet? It, I'll give you the tenth as an example. Yeah. From the second I got there to the second I left, it was a total nightmare. Right. You know, there there was really no celebrating for me. I was stuck in that tiny, tiny checkpoint, which is yeah. basically just a mobile home, <laughs> uh, a single wide trailer. 
Yeah. And I just was constantly processing people and I'd get hot and I'd open the window and the Trabi would sit next to me and blow the, the smoke in there. And so I'd get sick. I'd close it. I mean, it was just a, it was just a mess. Um, before the wall fell, you know, it was pretty constant, but not as dramatic. And then after the wall, it, it slowed down a great deal. Uh, yeah. Because in, in March, you know, they decided not to use the checkpoint for processing anymore. Right. So that yeah. meant you, you no longer had to monitor these visits and give out these folders, correct? Correct. Correct. Basically, it was it was freewheeling. And, and they only had about 16 openings in the wall at that time. Mm-hmm. So when they stopped processing at the checkpoint, we still manned the checkpoint basically as a information center for anybody who might be lost or confused or whomever. We were there for tourists. Mm. But in the, you know, late at night, I mean, there was nothing going on. We had a vehicle we could drive over into the east. So one night, a buddy of mine and I decided that we were going to go to each one of the East German checkpoints and see what it was like. Mm -hmm. And I brought my scrapbook and I had them stamp my scrapbook. So they said, so I went to all these East German checkpoints, about 16 of them. Yeah. And they stamped my check. Some of them thought I was, you know, coming to inspect. They thought I was an officer. They'd salute me. Other ones would, would wonder why I was there and they questioned me. And, you know, I just said, no, I'm just having fun. Just, just getting a stamp if I could. Yeah. And, and, and all of them gave me the stamp. You know, some of them were thrilled to see me. Some of them weren't. But they all relinquished the stamp, so I was pretty pleased. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a picture of it and I'll send it to you. I got my yeah. scrapbooks. So yeah. Yeah. No, I'd I'd really I'd really like to see that. That sounds like a great souvenir. Yeah, I have a huge scrapbook uh, that I started a uh, little before the wall fell. Um, about my time at the checkpoint, the time I met Bob Hope, the time Ronald Reagan went through. Uh, after the wall had fallen, he took a chip off and he drove through the checkpoint going back uh, to the airport. Um, bon John, John Bon Jovi, you ever heard of them? Yeah, have I heard of John Bon Jovi? Yeah, yeah well, I, 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 Yeah, who's Bob Hope, though? You don't know Bob <laughs> I'm joking, Bob I'm joking. Bob Hope was really <laughs> funny because he came in the checkpoint, he asked us if, if, is this where we buy the tickets? You know, because it did look like a ticket tape area. This is where yeah. you get so he was really nice and I got his autograph John Bon Jovi came in yeah. and he actually sat down with me inside the checkpoint it was late at night and he talked to me for maybe five minutes and then all of a sudden the door flew open and a bunch of people started screaming and a guy started taking pictures Yeah, and he apologized I asked for his autograph he said sure and he signed it and then he took off it was pretty right. cool and did I did I see a photo of you on Facebook with Sylvester Stallone as well? No, that was that Sylvester nice. Stallone was when I was I wasn't at the checkpoint yet. Oh, okay, but he tried to go go across and they refused to let him go. They denied him travel, so he had to come back. But he tried to do it on the civilian side. If he'd have went on the military side with a yeah. military escort, uh, he they would have let him through. They didn't have a choice, but they didn't want Rambo to be roaming around. Yeah, I was going to say, is that is that their, their grounds for refusing him because of uh, the Rambo films? Yeah, it's it's it basically it's just you know bad PR. You know that's yeah. not somebody they want roaming around in, yeah. in their 
you know, area. So were there any other celebrities that they refused entry to that, you know, not that I can, not that I can think of. I mean, yeah. the majority of them just went over, you know, the VIPs went over without any problem. They didn't even process the checkpoint. They would just drive by my window. They would look at me. I'd throw them a book and that would be it. <laughs> you know, those were the four star generals, the secretary of defense, you know, yeah. we, we didn't even, we didn't even blink at them funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, and did you meet Reagan? What did you say Reagan? Was I didn't there? meet Reagan. What happened was his limousine pulled next to the checkpoint and an aide gave me a little slip of paper and it happened to have his autograph on it. And that was it. A right. two second drive by, I saluted the car and it was gone. Wow. So that was after he was president. He, was, he wasn't president. Oh, okay. Longer. Okay. So Cause I see that. When he gave the, the speech, it was right. after the wall had fallen. He went over and chipped a piece off. Of the oh, okay, yeah, no, I re- I remember that uh, seeing that on TV because th- there's that great uh, footage of his visit to Checkpoint Charlie where he he pretends to stumble over the white line. Right, right. That was way before my time. Yeah. Okay. So so they they st- you have to stop monitoring the visit. So then from March to June. What, what do you do then? Are you just standing around being a tourist information kiosk? Yeah, for, for a while until I, I kind of found a role. You know, I would talk to somebody. And for example, I saw a World War II veteran, and he was older. And I said, uh, are you going to go over? And he, he said, no, I, I don't have the time, and it, it looks like a lot. I said, would you like to go over? And he looked at me. I said, I'll be glad to take you over. So I he got in my MP vehicle and I took him to the East. We drove around and he was thrilled. We had a ball and I did that for a few people, you know, yeah. it was basically the, the tour guide service. So if I had time, I, w- I did that. I, you know, I found somebody that, you know, thought it was a little overwhelming at the time. And, uh, and I would buzz him over and show him around. I would always take him to trip because I, I, in my thought that was a can't miss. Got to go see it. Yeah. So, and of course, the other side of the Brandenburg Gate. Yeah. yeah. But that's what I did. And then, you know, when they finally decided to, you know, end the checkpoint time and take it away, and that's when my East Berlin patrol days stopped. Yeah. So t- take me through the June 22nd, 1990, the, the last day at the, the checkpoint. Were you there that You were there that day, weren't you? Well, I, I'll, I'll back you up just a touch. Okay. Well, on the 12th of June, I was lucky enough to have an Associated Press photographer take a picture of me, uh, Terry Wynn, and Dennis Gamon of the French. So it was a, the Allied photo with our thumbs up. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we thought the thumb up thing was stupid, so we only did it for half a second, but that's the uh, photo that they used and that went all around the world as an Associated Press photography picture, even right. in my hometown which is pretty cool. Um, hey, front page. Were you in front, your hometown? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was cool. That's good. And, uh, so, you know, they kept saying the checkpoint's going to go away, but we don't know when. And finally they chose a date on the 22nd. So on the 21st during the day, I was NCYC for that day. So we had tons of press there, tons of, you know, uh, young MPs walking around being interviewed. It was kind of, it was kind of neat to see the young 18 to 19 year old kids, privates being interviewed, photos taken, 
uh, by the tourists and by the press. And I just yeah. stayed inside the checkpoint, and, you know, relaxed and, and watch it all, watch it all go down. But when I got off at six o'clock, I had to wake back up the following day to go be part of the closing ceremony. Yeah. And we, I had to be there at five o'clock, which means I woke up at four, really three thirty, mm-hmm. got in my dress uniform and went to Templehof where we practiced how the, the whole thing was going to go down. Right. And, uh, we, we worked on it, worked on it, and I was supposed to be the one to lock the door. And I blame this on Nate Brown because Nate, you know, when the, when the ceremony started, Nate decided he'd had enough of standing at parade rest. He came to attention and, and walked away, and we all had to move up one step. So uh, another soldier had to go in to behind me, and I lost the privilege of locking the door of the checkpoint. So, but I was part of that platoon. Uh, that was the honor platoon as the general Haddock, uh, secretary Baker, uh, foreign minister, Shevardnadze and, and the other allied, uh, Douglas Hurd was there. Yeah, Douglas Hurd, the British yeah. foreign minister was there. So it was pretty neat, but the speeches were ungodly long. Oh yeah. And, and, okay. and standing there waiting and waiting and waiting, your arms went numb. It was pretty bad. And finally, when it was over, we, you know, we did this little, you know, it's on YouTube. Have you seen the ceremony on YouTube? Yeah, I have. I haven't watched okay. it all the way through because it, it did seem quite long. <laughs> oh, it, it's painful. It's painful. <laughs> and, you know, they, they closed it, and uh, we, had, we had no job, basically. We did East Berlin Patrol for a little while longer, but that yeah. was basically it. And then uh, Nate Brown and I ended up going to the, the brigade, and we worked on Clay Compound in the Emergency Operations Center. Mm-hmm. which was below ground when we had emergencies within the brigade, they were, we were a notification center. Right. So that's where Nate and I ended up. I'm not sure what happened to the other two after we closed. Yeah. But I, I understand you did something with the foundation stones after they lifted the, um, the uh, hut off the uh, ground. Those foundation stones became quite the collector's item. And, and Nate Brown, myself, and Ed Baldwin made sure the East German border guards got some of those. And we kept a couple for ourselves. But, mm-hmm. you know, we gave them – I've given them away over the years. You yeah. know, say, hey, this is a little piece of Checkpoint Charlie. A lot of people still have them. And they, you know, they, they talk about them. And, you know, it's they went fast because as soon as that checkpoint was gone, that they rushed – they rushed to that and there wasn't that many. <laughs> yeah. So I was kind of, I was kind of shocked. It was like, a, you'll see it at the end of the closing ceremony. Yeah. You see people just rushing for the, the foundation stuff. Wow. And what did the East German border guard say, say to you? They just said, thank you. We, we posed for some pictures. They were, you know, they were really nice. And we, we used to make up nicknames for them, you know, like Helga, you know, she was mean, you know, <laughs> just, just crazy names, you know, God, Helga's working day. We're going to have issues. <laughs> but they ended, up, they ended up being, you know, normal and nice. They were just doing, in their mind, a job. Yeah. You know, they thought they were on the right side of history. And yeah. And turned out that they weren't. Yeah. Because I, I often wonder sort of like what, you know, what they, they thought that, you know, suddenly their whole world had changed overnight. Well, yeah, there's no doubt. And especially after reunification, they went from one uniform to another. And some of them didn't even get jobs because of their their background. Yeah. You know, the Stasi records prohibited them from getting 
jobs with the you know the normal German police. Yeah. So you know, there's there were some nasty ones over there, just not friendly. And when you say not friendly, just how did that manifest itself? Were they yeah. rude to you, or yeah, just just not not overly, you know, because we we would wave and you know do do all kinds of silliness, you know, and they would some of those guys would do nothing, almost flip you off. They could care less. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, one of the the funny stories I've been trying to get an East German border guard hat for a lot of the times we were there, you know, I was like, Hey, I'll trade a white hat because nobody's ever going to get an East German border guard hat. Mm-hmm. So finally one of the guys traded it and three or four days later, they're selling them all along the Berlin wall everywhere. <laughs> and I had to go all the way to Frankfurt to get a new white hat. So <laughs> it wasn't worth it. I should have yeah. just waited. So how, how do you explain the loss of the hat? I didn't have to explain it. It was just, I just needed to get a new one. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I just, I just borrowed, you know, the, the other NCYC's hats for the minimal amount of time I didn't have one. Um, but I think I read something about on that, the, the 10th of November, you struggled to get back to your base uh, when you finished at six o'clock, didn't you? You had yeah, to. Yeah. That was, a, that was, it wasn't even six o'clock. I had to stay about two hours extra. So I was pretty much there till about eight. Right. And, no patrol in their right mind would come pick me up. I wasn't feeling well. I decided to go to Kochstrasse U-Bahn, and I sat there at the, the U-Bahn stop, and one train went by full of people. Next train went by tons of people. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War, uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Finally, I, just, I had to make a decision. I had to try and push my way on. Mm-hmm. And I, I took one step on, and it was like a miracle. Everybody just got out of my way like I was somebody important. And I'm, I'm telling everybody, thank you, thank you, you know, welcome. Thank you, thank you. And the ride all the way back to, to the American sector, it, it's probably about 40 minutes. A couple train stops. And uh, finally I got on U2, which is the one that runs from Wittbergplatz to Krumalanka. And I got on that one. And across from me was a, a little girl from Potsdam and her father. And we got going. And I was trying so hard. I mean, I was sick. I thought I was going to throw up on the poor girl. And we just, you know, we just started talking. And, and he was telling me he was from Potsdam. I asked him if it was their first time here. They said yes. And, you know, we just small talk. And before, yeah. I, before I got off, I took the Berlin pin off my shirt, off my sweater, and I put it on her scarf, and I said, welcome. And then, you know, he was emotional. I was not feeling well. I just had to get off. She smiled and I, and I was gone. 
And wow. uh, I just wanted to do something small for it. Cause she, you know, it was, it was a pretty big deal. Yeah, no, that, that's a, that's a, a great story. I've got an interview lined up in a few weeks with somebody who um, was 12 years old when the war came down. And uh, I'm really interested to sort of try and hear what sort of thoughts go, go through, you know, people's heads, you know, when, when, when this, you know, incredible thing happened and they're, and they're well changed, but that, that's a really touching story. Thank, thank you very much for sharing that. It's no problem. So when did you leave Berlin? I left Berlin in January of 91 and the army asked me to do a tour as a United States army recruiter. And did I jump for joy? No, not really. I wasn't thrilled, but I did it. And I ended up in Meadville, Pennsylvania. And in Meadville, I made the decision to try and get a piece of the Berlin wall for the the community there. Mm-hmm. So I brought a 287-pound piece of the Berlin Wall to Meadville, Pennsylvania, and it still sits in the courthouse today. And I did that in 1992. So wow. they were quite happy. Yeah, and and it was I, it was pretty cool. It was on the front page of the Meadville Tribune, the newspaper. It said East meets West in Meadville, and and I was pretty touched. So I was recruiting at the time, so that was just more exposure for me and the army. And what was initially supposed to be a three-year tour in recruited ended up being a 14-year tour in recruiting. And I stayed the entire time, the entire time that I had left in the Army yeah. as a United States Army recruiter. And that's wow. what I did. And do you, you still stay in touch with your uh, colleagues? I stay in touch. And it's strange because, like, uh, Sergeant Champagne, I'm friends with him on Facebook. If it wasn't for Facebook... I wouldn't have stayed in touch with a lot of people, but a lot of people come out of the woodworks and they're there. And I go, wow, you know, like Doug Champagne, I go, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity for becoming an NCYC of Checkpoint Charlie. You put me in that position. And, and I got to do that because of Facebook, Yeah, you know, and I made friends with uh, major general Haddock, Raymond Haddock, who was the last United States commander of Berlin. And I got to say thank you to him. And, uh, he, him and I ended up being, we're pretty decent friends, uh, just because of Facebook and, and, you know, just how easy going he is. Yeah. So I was, I, I'm pretty lucky, you know, my RMP buddies, you know, that you see on your wall, the, you know, a lot of the German, uh, workers that work for the Americans in the American sector, they're, you know, part of your webpage now and yeah. they're participating uh, I think all that is is pretty cool. I mean, they're pretty busy. You know, they get on there and they're posting. Yeah, no, so. I I appreciate you uh, inviting them all all, all on, and uh, yeah, no, been re- been really enjoying their their posts. I mean, how how did you end up um, meeting Vitaly, the 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 Soviet? Uh, uh, that's a, that's a great great question. I asked him back on 21 June of 1990, the day the checkpoint closed, he got out of his car, his Russian car with his other uh, Soviet compatriots. And because he wanted a picture with all of us in front of the checkpoint. And he even signed my, my, my uh, scrapbook. So he took this picture and I sent you a copy and it was pretty grainy. And I took a picture at the same time. 
which mine is, is a lot better. And I found him on Facebook. No, he found me on Facebook because I posted a picture of myself and two other Soviet officers. And he said, he got on line and said, I know those guys. And I said, your name sounds really familiar. And I flicked through my book and I found the name. And I said, we've already done this. <laughs> so we've interacted ever since he's now an American citizen. And he's a, I, when I need something translated uh, that's written in Cyrillic or something like that, he is more than happy to do it. Yeah. He's a, he's an excellent guy. Uh, I, treasure him as a friend and I think I hope he does an interview with you because you know he would be a good resource for how the, uh, the Soviet forces yeah in Germany were at that time yeah no I, d- I really would like to chat with him so if you can put in a good word for me that, oh I will very much appreciate he's a busy guy though I yeah, yeah. Him, yeah. So. When, whenever he's whenever he's he's ready you know there's 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 no rush but would would love to uh to uh, speak with him. Is there anything you, you think we've, we've not covered or any uh, little an- extra anecdotes you, you think you could share with us? Did you ever hear the story of Helmut? Helmut? Helmut was an elderly man that used to always come down to the checkpoint, and I think he had had a stroke. So he would constantly come down, and you couldn't understand a word he'd, word he'd say, nothing. But he'd come and he'd smile and he'd shake your hand and thank you. And then he'd, he'd, you know, say yuck to the East Germans. And we basically took him on as a, like a mascot. And every pin that we had, he'd wear on his, his jacket. And it became, it became almost his uniform because he'd change jackets. But he'd always put his, his pins on whatever he was wearing. Right, and he would and he would come down constantly to the checkpoint, and there were stories that he had family over in the east, but like I said, you know, he never, you know, could speak to us, yeah, because of the stroke. But you yeah. know, I'm sure he's gone now. But he was a big part of the checkpoint during that time. Yeah, did you? Were there any other regulars that you know you 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 got used to? Because you were right next to the Cafe Adler, weren't you? There. Yeah, but we never really did anything with the Cafe Adler. Right above the cafe was a VIP suite that we owned right. to where you could go up there. And I, on the 11th, I think, I went up there and from the balcony, I took photos. And I was yelling down onto the crowd to have them look up and smile. You know, I'm 24 years old, and I'm thinking I'm funny taking pictures, yelling at these people to yeah. look up and smile, and, and thousands of people look up, smile, wave. <laughs> they were just having a good old time. I, yeah. Have I ever shown you those? I think you. there's one photo of you in the crowd, but I'm not sure I've seen the photos from that balcony. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to send them to you. The one yeah. that, that when I was in the crowd, it was taken by uh, Lieutenant Kiernan's husband, I believe. And she was nice enough to, I was, to give me a copy. And it's funny because it's a Where's Waldo picture. I'm, <laughs> I'm in there. And I know where I'm going because I was a frequent flyer to the bathroom down there. And that's the direction of the bathroom. <laughs> so I was, just, I was just trying to do nothing important, just trying to go to the bathroom. So. Oh, I don't know. If you're doing those 12-hour days, I would imagine that's very important. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But it was it was a great time, a great experience to, yeah. to be there and to be able to witness history along with the the soldiers of the two eighty seventh, the two forty, I think two forty seventh RMPs. 
I think that's their call sign. Of course, the gendarmeries that were there too. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, thank you very much for sharing that. Now, um, I normally have a few uh, what I call quick fire questions. Just interested to know other things like what, what's your favorite Cold War film? Oh, it would have to be the newest one with Tom Hanks. Oh, with Bridge, Bridge of Spies. Spies. With Rudolph Ivanovich Abel and Francis Gary Powers. And I was lucky enough to talk on the phone with Francis Gary Powers Jr. Yeah. So, so that, you know, he was asking for uh, donations of mine, like a, a uniform, a hat, a bizarre, whatever, for the Cold War Museum that they have. And I sent them some stuff for for that. And I also sent my Brizard to the Maurer Museum in Berlin to Mrs. Hildebrand. Um, I wanted something of me there. Yeah. So so I sent the Brizard. I asked my kids if it was okay and they thought it was a great idea and I sent it sent it up. Oh so. that's good. Yeah, because Francis Gary Powers Jr. is uh, a member of our Cold War Conversations Facebook group. Really good guy. Uh, him and him and John Welsh, I believe, is his name, are the two that lead the charge for the Cold War Museum. Yeah, I I have messaged him to see whether he'd be up for a uh, a Cold War conversation with me, but uh, I've yet to have a reply. So uh, Gary, if you're listening, give me a message. He, he's really a good guy. He's uh, really a good guy. Great. And what piece of music would you uh, choose as your soundtrack to your time in Berlin? Is it Bon Jovi? No, it would have to be the Scorpions. Oh, yeah. Change. Yeah. Yeah, it's just part of it. And, you know, I hate to say it, but I'm going to. It's it's the Hasselhoff song, you know, because, you know, I can't even remember uh, the Freedom song that he sings. Whenever I think of the Berlin Wall, I think of that, that song. Not that it's silly or anything. You know, they say Germans love David Hasselhoff, but... You know, that song, if you listen to it more than once, it kind of gets under your, your skin and it becomes part of you. Yeah. So, so yeah, those two songs, but mainly the Scorpions and Winds of Change, you know, because a lot of change was going on during that time and fast. Yeah. I mean, it went from 8 November, everything was locked down, to, you know, 3 October, everybody's together in their one country. And it happened in less than a year. Yeah. So, you know, that was an amazing time period and, and, and I got to witness it. Mm. So. No, absolutely. It was in, in incredible how, how things changed all across Europe, not just in, um, in Germany. Right. So, um, you've mentioned that you've, you've got various souvenirs that you've, you know, collected. What would you say is your most prized item from your time in Berlin? There's no doubt it's my scrapbook. My scrapbook has almost, oh my, it has tons of photos and newspaper clippings and autographs. And, you know, I would just have everybody sign it. It was almost like a big yearbook from yeah. the year the year that was, which was 9 November to 3 October. And it, everything's included in it. Um, from little knickknacks from the German police, the East German police, uh, the French, the British, it's it's a irreplaceable artifact. There's only yeah. one of them. Yeah. So I, I will I will take a small video of it so you can see it. But it's about six inches thick. Wow. Just jammed of stuff. Yeah. So 
And everybody would say when they would sign it, oh, I wish I would have thought of that. And I would say, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't. I'm the only one. So, but, you know, made well, a lot of stars and stripes, newspaper stuff and yeah. pictures that I took, you know, there's a few pictures that I autographed for people, but, you know, I still work for the army as a contractor. Right. And, uh, Every once in a while, I'll find a soldier that I think is deserving of not an autograph from me, but maybe a piece of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. And they'll ask for an autograph, and then I'll give them a, a picture of me in front of Checkpoint Charlie's sign, and I'll, I'll send that off with them. So, wow. So, there's a few, there's a few of my favorite guys have yeah. pictures of me. So, that's pretty cool. Well, that, that's, that's, uh, that scrapbook sounds like an amazing um, document of um of that period in history yeah i think you'd get a kick out of it Ian. Yeah. i think you really would if you could invite three people from the cold war period to have a few beers with who who would you choose and they don't have to be sort of people who were living in the 1980s um, wow well of course you'd have to have willie Brown. right oh, uh, I've, I've not had anybody ask for him yet that's a good one yeah uh, a guy named Frank Howley. Do you know who Frank Howley is? No. He was uh, one of the generals that was involved in the very beginning, in the 40s, right after when Berlin became occupied. Yeah. And uh, if, you, if you Google his name, he talks in great detail about the challenges of a occupied city yeah. and how they had to deal with the Soviets and... and he dealt with them with a heavy hand, and he was pretty impressive. He went from colonel to brigadier general there in Berlin. But if you ever want – there's some good books that Frank Howley has written. Yeah. But he was a mainstay in uh, the Berlin command. He was one of the first. He basically set the standards that all commandants followed down the road. Yeah. Well, what would you want to ask him, do you think? I would want to ask him – and I'd, I'd really just like to listen to him and, and I'd like to know what his opinion of how it turned out because in his mind, I, I really think in his mind, he thought that it would take more to end the situation mm. and it, it didn't, it ended peacefully. Yeah. And I would like to, I would like to hear his, his thoughts of it. And what would you want to ask Willie, Willie Brandt? Well, he was, you know, mayor of Berlin, chancellor of Germany. He yeah. was, he was the go-to guy. And I just want to, I just want to know, cause he was at the closing ceremony of the checkpoint and he, he was elderly. So he yeah. got to see it all. He yeah. got to be friends with John F. Kennedy, you know, so he would know all the secrets on how the Americans really felt about Berlin, how he really felt about Americans you know, you'd, you'd like to think that people lo- love Americans, but especially now there's a feeling of people not really caring for us. And that that kind of makes me nervous, you know, yeah. because a lot of, you know, today especially, you know, World War II, a lot, we lost a lot of Americans during that time frame. And he's, uh, you know, an, an interesting character because obviously he had that Stasi spy who was his aide as well. Right, right. Um, which I don't really, know a lot about that, but that's that's pretty good. I yeah, um, and that was really his downfall in politics as a result of that. Uh, you can have a third person as well. It, it, would, it would be John F. Kennedy, right? Because Kennedy had to make a decision on how far, you know. And I and I go between Kennedy and Lucius Clay 
because both of them, you know, Clay was head really heavy-handed when it came to pulling the tanks up at the checkpoint and making a making a decision on how far we were going to go. Were we going to knock down the wall? What, what are we going to do to maintain these access rights? And my understanding is Kennedy said, we are not going to start World War III over this. Yeah. And, and I, you know, you're going to have to give me four. I think Lucius Clay and Kennedy <laughs> need to be on there too. So. Yeah, no, that, that's, a great, that's a great list. There's at least three people there we've not had asked for before. So I'm, I'm very pleased with that list you got there. Um, and if if somebody's looking for a book in English that is a good history or gives good detail about Checkpoint Charlie, is there such a thing? There, you know, the book that I'm in, and I told you, I think I might have said, this is the first interview I've done in about 24 years. The last one I did was a, a British author by the name of Christopher Hilton. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. He wrote, he wrote a book on called People's Story. And even though he spelled my last name wrong, I I don't hold any ill will because he did put me in the book and I, and I I was honored, but he called me from England and we talked for a good hour, hour and a half. Uh, but the people's story is an excellent book. Mm -hmm. Um, of course I'd refer people to an older book, uh, one done by Frank Cowley called Berlin command because it explains, uh, how everything basically started, how, how, uh, the separation, the difficulty of the separation, you know, people were getting raped, killed. You know, the Germans were having a heck of a time. They were rebuilding a devastated city. Mm. They, you know, Frank Howley had to help with the infrastructure and the Brits and the French. You don't mind if I say Brits, do you? Oh, not at all. Oh, okay. we're, we're all allies together here, Michael. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, they, they used to call me the spam, so... So I just wanted to make sure I wasn't saying anything that was out of line. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> but we, we, they all had to provide infrastructure, you know, through the Marshall Plan. But Marshall Plan, you know, was in Western Germany, and we had to figure out a way to get it 110 miles into the Soviet sector to make sure the people of Berlin were okay. And the Berlin Command talks about the difficulty in doing that and how difficult the Soviets were during that time frame because they didn't want us there. And Frank Howley explains first person about that drama and about those problems. And Lucius Clay talks about it too in his book. So when you talk about the Cold War, you know, I wouldn't say talk about the 80s. I would talk about the early, the beginnings, you know, not even the part where Pat wanted to keep on fighting. You know, yeah. these people were diplomats. Fantastic diplomats that kept us out of a third world war or really a continuation of the second and and did wonderful things for the German people. And it, I, ju- I just hope that we can get back to that place where we are one again as friends because there was a lot of hope at the end of the 80s that we were all going to be happy and there would be no problems anymore. And it doesn't seem like it's going in that direction, and that that makes me sad. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I think there was a lot of hope that you know Russia would become a proper democracy, and you know we'd all be a a great family of nations. Um, but uh, yeah, it doesn't certainly doesn't look like that at the at the moment. Is there a, a film or a TV series which you think is a good 
representation of life in Berlin in the 1980s? I know you mentioned Bridge of Spies, which is 60s, but are there, are there any films that you or, or TV series that you think are? You know, there was a there was a show in the 80s called Gotcha. It, it was a funny, silly thing, but it had a lot of Berlin. It even has Checkpoint Charlie in it. Um, All right. I've not uh, that had Anthony, Anthony Edwards starred in that. It's called Gotcha. But it's, right. you know, it's an 80s movie. Any of those 80s movies, it, as you look back on them, are just kind of silly. You know, they have a weird, you know, you say hey, that that movie came from the 80s. You can, you can tell it a mile away. Yeah. But if you even want to go back farther, there's a there's a movie Ferrer talking about the duty train going through the east and a and an East German stowaway goes on it. I'll right. have to find that for you, but it's yeah. an excellent movie. I think it's on YouTube. It really is a, a spooky movie because they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with this guy. Are they going to report him? Are they going to give him to the East Germans? Are they going to you know hide him out? Yeah, you know, they didn't know what to do. Oh, I've not seen that. Now, Michael, I've taken enough of your time today. I really do appreciate your time talking to me, particularly this being your first interview in 24 years. It's, it's been, well, I hope our friendship lasts longer than this. I hope, uh, I hope you, you stay in contact with me on Facebook. And if there's anybody, anything I can do to help to uh, tell the story of the Cold War and, and the soldiers uh, of the 287th, there's many of us that all have a, a variety of different stories of their experiences. You know, I'll be more than happy to hook you up with them. Um, but thank you for giving me the yeah. opportunities to, to talk a little bit about it. Well, no, ab- absolutely, Michael. And yeah, if any of your friends, colleagues want to talk to me and, and tell me their story, I'd be you know delighted um, to do that with them. One thing I did want to say was to thank you for your service and particularly on Memorial Day and to thank all your friends um, who have served or are serving, who who have joined the Facebook group. I'm really appreciative of that and, you know, the postings that they've already um, put up on there. Well, that's wonderful, Ian. Thank you so much and, and thank you for for keeping the memory alive. We truly appreciate it and and on this day, when we celebrate the fallen, remember the fallen, uh, I couldn't think of a better day to talk to you. Well, no, thank you, Michael. And, and that is my mission, is to preserve the memory and record these stories. So really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Ian. Look forward to talking to you again. Well, that's all we had time for. But I was genuinely honoured to speak to Michael, who had been an eyewitness to such a pivotal piece of history. There's extra information in the show notes, but if you want to see Michael's photos and precious scrapbook, then head over to our Facebook page where Michael is a member. There's a link in the show notes. The show notes can be found at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 13. We're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod. If you like what you're hearing, please leave reviews on iTunes or with your podcast provider and share with your friends. Thank you very much for listening. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community 
received the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.